You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is uh, Abraham, and I am so happy today that I get to be joined by none other than Miranda. Hello, this is Miranda. So this is our first time ever recording an episode where it's just the two of us. Yeah. How cool is that? I'm so excited. Super neat. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, like I said, at our one year, I believe we talked a little bit about the fact that we would be doing more, getting the team involved in part of this. So uh, this is you know that's that's what's happening. Expanded team. Yeah. More voices. Team. I love it. Good stuff. All right. All right. So let's go ahead and jump into this. Yeah. Uh, let's. I want to start by uh, asking. Uh, do you have any pets, Miranda? Um, no, not anymore. I don't, no? but okay. I grew up with pets. I love pets. Yeah. yeah. Animals are fun. Yeah. How about you? Uh, I have some cats. Um, thinking about getting a dog from a rescue or something. Oh, wow. But, um, yeah. So, uh, I, I've been one of those where I always kind of feel like, am I providing a home that's really better of a life than this animal would have if it weren't in my home? And I think for those animals that have been domesticated to the point of no return, probably yes. But there are certain other like wild animals where I would imagine probably no. You know, um, I think if I tried to have a tiger in my house. Uh, but anyway, we're getting off topic already. Sorry, <laughs> I lead us astray too easily. So what I'm uh, we're actually getting at is is talking about therapy with these pets. And so what would you think of if I said the words hippotherapy? Um, I definitely, an image comes to mind of a friendly hippopotamus, um, wearing glasses and and nodding very empathetically, um, as I tell him about my problems for sure. That sounds like a nice hippo. (laughs) (laughs) But that's not really the kind of therapy you're talking about, right? (laughs) No. And so this episode is going to be sort of another one of those entries in where we're talking about things that fall into the realm of pseudoscience, at least in part. And I think it's a lot to unpack inside of this, but um, the the fact that an enormous chunk of the research, quote unquote research, and how this has often been portrayed, I think pretty well is, uh, falls under that category of what would, what one would call pseudoscience. And so uh, we're talking about this thing called animal-assisted therapy. Yeah. And that is type of therapy that uses animals and it can use a lot of different types of animals i mean there's accounts of horses cats dogs um potbelly pigs i've heard about um that are used in in treatment um another one dolphins and llamas and even rabbits there's lots that we're gonna get into (laughs) yeah but we should say that there is a difference between um this type of animal assisted therapy um versus you know service animals such as dogs that have been trained to guide um blind people uh dogs that have been trained to assist people with seizure disorders this is this is very different from from that also it's very common now for people to get their animal usually a dog i believe um certified as what they would call like a therapy dog or Mm -hmm. therapy animal and emotional support animal exactly and so that's also not what we're talking about uh, today. Instead, animal-assisted therapy, as, as you sort of described, is intended to improve some sort of mental health disorder. Sometimes it's also social, emotional, um, and physical in many cases. Um, and we're really going after this at the angle of where animal-assisted therapy lives inside of like psychological treatment sort of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And so some of that is uh, there's a lot of really legitimate 
practice and where uh, the the animals are trained to provide a really valuable service to humans and that they able are able to form sort of a symbiotic relationship with them. Um, and we're not really talking about that <laughs> legitimate <laughs> uh, symbiotic relationship today. It's important to note all that we're not talking about in order to really get down to what, what is perhaps a little, uh, I want to say troubling, but should be considered about right. a- animal assisted therapy. Yeah, exactly. It's not, not all butterflies and rainbows, um, as one might hope. So let's let's go back in time a little bit, go over some of the history. What I, what I found in some of the research that I did is that um, there are some records, I guess, or some people who purport that this began in the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages in Belgium. And then this also sort of later spread and was adopted for use with uh, people who were mentally ill and people were, who were homeless. And um, the Greeks talked about using horses specifically to quote unquote lift people's spirits. Okay. And so the people would sort of hang out with horses um, and, and potentially other animals, but that's, that's was the idea, not just with horses, but with those other animals, with the mentally ill and the homeless um, was to bring them up that, that these animals are these lively fun things and therefore fun to be around. And they help those people who are sort of down and out in a way. And, um, Following up on that later, in the 17th century, horses were used, and I don't know exactly what they mean when they say used here, but uh, presumably they were alive. They were used to treat physical and mental issues. And later, uh, and at that time, and later on, and continuing actually, animals were used to help war vets um, or veterans to help them forget about the war and help them focus on their recovery instead. Again, don't know how they were used. There's really no mention of specifically what it entails to mean having an animal help them with this. Um, but that was one thing that was reported on um, back, you know, historically speaking, as well as up through sort of more modern times. Yeah, but it sounds like it's a little murky, um, kind of the 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 genesis of all of this. It's not exactly clear how the animal assisted therapy was really administered. Right. I would guess that probably what happened was there were elements of this that sort of built up over time and it began to become more systematized in certain places than uh, it got a name that was recognized and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that probably this just sort of got shaped up over time and, and started to become a sort of a, a, a own entity of a thing. And going back, uh, or actually, I guess, moving forward from that point, in 1969, there was this guy named Boris Levinson, and he introduced this thing called a pet therapy technique. And he talks about this as the idea that there is an intrinsic need for humans to bond with nature. Uh, and I was just reading this thinking, okay, well, we are part of nature, and it, <laughs> we're also animals. So, I mean, I don't why? <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. So in the early 60s, he was doing this like therapeutic research, this therapeutic work, and he made this quote unquote accidental discovery. Right. Um, he had his dog named Jingles and um, he had been working uh, Boris, not the dog, Boris was working with this boy um, who had some mental health issues and uh, he had left the, bo- the boy alone to go do something and he comes back and um, the boy was actually interacting with the dog. And so uh, Boris was all inspired and thought, whoa, this is 
pretty awesome. Um, we need to figure out what other magical powers my dog has <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and the effects that it has on these impaired young patients. And so he, he called this pet therapy specifically and was investigating the beneficial uh, aspects, if you will, of uh, using the, this pet dog in these settings and that it was supposed to sort of bring out um, or have them have this interaction uh, that would bring out these positive things. Unclear, again, exactly what that would look like or what he was trying to get to, but that, that was sort of what he was going after, I guess. I, I did like, however... Despite what this is going to turn into as we go through the history of how this sort of develops, he had a quote in here I kind of liked, and he says that it has by no means been the intention of, of well, he says this writer, but he's talking about himself, to indicate that um, pets are a panacea for all of the ills of society or for the pain involved in growing up and growing old. And then he goes on to say that even though that's the case, pets are, can still really help humans and society, and that they sort of help fill in um, providing service and aid in places where that need exists and that they can provide some relief and give much pleasure and remind us of our origins. Again, not totally sure what he means by that, but um, just going to this idea that I like that he was at least attending to the fact that if you have a problem, an animal is not always the fix for that problem. Exactly. It seems like he has a very tempered kind of perspective about it, you know, that there are great ills and needs within society that should be addressed in, in better ways. But in the meantime, you know, an animal can help you feel a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what he was going for. And, and I think that that's, that's fine. That's probably not inaccurate. It's still, I think a little less scientifically rigorous than I would prefer it to be. Um, and it's, not necessarily a really boisterous claim of, hey, if you've got arthritis, come get this dog and it'll cure your arthritis. It's not at that level of pseudoscience, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think you, you said it very well. Okay. But that moves us on to another really interesting uh, character named John C. Lilly. And this guy was a little more pseudoscientific. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. Ever so slightly. Uh, he was what is called a dolphin scientist. Yeah, so, at one point in his a, career, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if there's an actual ologist that's uh, different from just a general marine biologist. You know, I think he, he probably, that was a self-proclaimed title, I would imagine. <laughs> there were no real credentials there. Yeah. Um, but he was also a self-proclaimed countercultural guru. Right. Uh, I mean, he had some really interesting ideas about animals, and specifically with these dolphins. Um, he claimed that they were telepathic, um, and of uh, and he had some very unorthodox ways of investigating this. Um, he and his team decided to give LSD to the dolphins. As was um, the thing to do at the time. Yeah, I mean, why not? Um, and for those very few people who would be listening to this and not know, LSD is a very intensely powerful hallucinogenic drug. So anyway, um, he also at one point, he, he had several assistants and teams that he worked with, at one point encouraged one of his um, assistants or team members to um, uh, help, I guess is the word, with sexual acts with the dolphin. I don't know. Which is ethically dubious at the very least, and yeah. perhaps uh, animal abuse if you're going to... Um, maybe call sp- a spade a spade. <laughs> yeah. I, I've actually heard the interview with, I I believe I've heard an interview. I don't know if it was actually the specific incident, but with someone who was involved in research back in the sixties uh, that had to do with uh, sexually relieving dolphins. 
and they seem to think it was a pretty nonchalant sort of thing. They're just like, oh yeah, well they were. They seem to be into it, so just sort of you know helped them. I don't know. I don't want to go there. All right. <laughs> 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 it's just I I don't understand exactly the the rationale that goes into making that seem like an ethical thing to do. So um, it seems like a lot of it has to do though with this perception that dolphins are close to human like in a lot of ways, or they have a, a lot of human like qualities that could perhaps justify uh, this uh, line of research, so to speak. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that seemed to be sort of what part of his rationale was um, for that, um, and and I think you looked into that a little bit more with like what what he meant by human like and why that was supposed to be helpful. Yeah, well, he he had some thoughts that um, dolphins, given their nature, um, they, they they appear definitely to emit certain emotional responses, much like humans. Um, they even have some some biological factors you know they they do actually suffer from things like ulcers um and stress related diseases in a way that that humans do that many other animals don't um it's it appears that from here he was extrapolating that they suffer from stress and anxiety and these types of um conditions that humans also suffer from thus you know they they may be well suited to assist in the treatment of these types of things but that begs the question of you know, if, if, if a dolphin uh, is is apt to assist in this way because of these human traits, why not just have a human <laughs> assist? Yeah, say, say what, what's even more like a human than a dolphin? <laughs> a, a human. human. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird. It's a little anyway. strange. Yeah. Um, but for anyone who's interested, check out his website because it is an early 2000s angel fire web page dream um it, it was very colorful um, yeah a lot of a lot of uh fun html happening so that's really funny it's worth a visit <laughs> didn't didn't have that modern internet technology so um another person came along and her name was betty smith and she initially proposed that this the dolphins had this therapeutic benefit after she had observed some really positive interactions between her brother who had um, some kind of mental disability. Um, he interacted with dolphins and had this really positive experience. And so she saw this and I probably thought to herself, wow, if it has this benefit for my brother, then maybe other people who are at least of a similar profile to him and maybe even a wider range, they could also have this therapeutic effect by interacting with dolphins. Then as she saw the research emerging from this, what happened with the, the commercial enterprise of people who began to market and sell dolphin therapy or dolphin-assisted therapy, as we'll get into it, um, and the other implications involving the ethics of, of using dolphins and all, all the things that are involved in that, she really disengaged herself from this practice and really no longer supports it. And so I think what that means is she is generally a good scientist mm -hmm. and a good human being you know when we see these things we change our mind because we understand that rather than just stick to our guns and just be wrong and dig our heels in about being wrong we change and adapt with the new information right exactly yeah all right um so betsy smith is one of our uh, sort of heroes in this um but then we move on to david nathanson um who was maybe slightly less of a hero <laughs> maybe just a little bit yeah and so uh, he tested John C. Lilly's hypothesis, and he had two boys with Down syndrome. And so he wanted to see, hey, can we get this telepathic 
LSD dolphin thing going on. Um, I actually don't know if he used LSD. I just think it's funny that he based it off of Lily. Anyway, um, he, what he did is he had it be the case that the the boys could feed the dolphins when they followed instructions and then when they got answers correct, I think he was trying to teach them something specifically. So wait, so so they would do something and then the dolphins, access to the dolphins was kind of contingent on the things he was trying to teach them. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Yeah, yeah. he basically made it that they could interact with the dolphins if and only if they did what he asked them to do. Now, there was one researcher I was looking at. He, this uh, individual did the, um, the meta-analysis or uh, whatever it was, the review of, of research that looked at Lily's studies. He also pointed to Nathanson's research and basically said that it was, again, methodologically flawed, unconvincing, didn't have adequate control groups, and had pretty significant researcher bias that was clearly visible. And so she and other researchers really questioned whether or not uh, the any therapeutic effects could be directly attributable to the dolphins. It seems to have been that relation of if and only if making it basically a reward for doing the thing that is being asked to do, which is something that we have known for nearly a hundred years. <laughs> exactly right. I mean, I think you could get a lot out of, out of me if it meant I could hang out with a dolphin for a little bit. Right. You know, yeah, dolphins, exactly. all of this being said, dolphins are, are pretty neat creatures and, you know, getting the chance to swim with one would be a pretty amazing experience. Right. Well, and another thing that happened inside of this was that this was a part, a place where those particular children had basically unlimited one-on-one attention, not even one-on-one. I mean, this was like five to one people paying Mm -hmm. attention to this kid. They're being showered with attention and praise. They're getting to be in a swimming environment with this creature that's five times their size at least. Um, And, and a totally radical, uh, a radically different environment from what they're used to being in, which is, I mean, it's not that surprising that their behavior would be different in a completely different environment than what they've ever been in before. And so there was a quote here, like they said, quote, he uses the dolphins like M&Ms, end quote. And so uh, basically what this person was talking about, and this gets into more of the issues we'll start talking about in a moment, um, but that these families who come to these therapy, quote unquote, therapy sessions, um, and they take these kids there, uh, they they put them these ch- children in a situation where they're basically just a very different environment. It's very cool to them. It's it's a lot of fun things. They get to do all this stuff. They have that reward situation going on, and they get to hang out with this really neat creature. Um, and even though that is not intrinsically going to do anything different than if they were in any other environment that was totally radical or weird and they had rewards available for their behavior, um, that these people are just raking in the cash um, based off of that. So we'll get into more, I guess, of how the system sort of works. But there are a few specific types of animal-assisted therapy. Um, we've already mentioned quite a few animals, um, but they all have some some names as well. Uh, and so sw- the swimming with dolphins therapy thing, there's actually two different kinds. There's simple, and then there's dolphin-assisted therapy or, or training. I saw them both. Um, and simple refers to the fact that it's literally just hanging out with dolphins in the water. That's all there is to it. Um, and then the dolphin assisted therapy has to do more with the specifically guided interactions where it's the dolphins are M&Ms thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I don't know if I if we should we should probably clarify the fact that the, they say using dolphins like M&Ms means uh, refers to using M&Ms as a reward type system. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So what we see in a lot of um more empirically validated therapy is that, you know, something like an M&M, some sort of reward 
oftentimes the candy will be administered contingent on some sort of response. Yeah. And so in this case, yeah, we're using the dolphins, which is a far more expensive (laughs) M&M. Yes, very. And, you know, that and that's just in line with a term that most people know now called positive reinforcement. That's all that's going on. That's the intention of it anyway. Um, Another type is called equine therapy. I see this all the time. This is also called horse therapy. This generally has to do with uh, a similar more similar to that simple dolphin therapy where basically kids get put on horses and uh, the, they're, they ride them around, uh, I believe, usually with a guide. And then there's one that's kind of interesting I saw that this is starting to exist is um, a robot animal-assisted intervention. Hmm. Okay, And they specifically built this robot seal, uh, <laughs> like like the water creature <laughs> seal. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and that this is supposed to be used for therapy, which I thought was kind of an interesting idea. It reminds me of the like Harlow's Monkeys experiment where you had like the, uh, the fluffy stuffed animal monkey and then the sure. one that was like the wire cage monkey anyway um, i immediately think of like a furby oh yeah that's a great one throwback yeah a giant <laughs> robot seal furby <laughs> it's more terrifying than cute you know I, I wish now i looked up how much one of those would cost because that would be a very interesting <laughs> toy to have around <laughs> and again not entirely sure what it's supposed to do maybe it's like supposed to be ai that reads your emotions and since that doesn't exist right at the time of this recording anyway um i'd be surprised if that's what it was but so miranda yes what's what's supposed to be the benefit out of interacting with these animals what are they supposed to get out of this well pretty much they can do anything according if you if you go by the research um the the research i put in air quotes um magical animals magical animals they are um there's a lot of purported benefits you know there's they can do anything from you know uh improve fine motor skills improve balance uh, they can do things like increase self-esteem, reduce anxiety, um, improve social skills, you know, so anything from physical to more emotional, social, all anything under those domains. Um, it's, it's been reported that that animal therapy can benefit. And even things as what seemed to me medically intense as re- uh, reducing blood pressure, mm. depression and lowering risk of heart attack or stroke. I have no idea, again, how that's supposed to be the case, but that's that's what they suggest. So there's, yeah, th- this is pretty intense. The list of things that this is supposed to do. I mean, it reminds me going back to um, Levinson describing this is not a cure for everything. You know? Yeah. This this is, it, this is something that, that could help because of this need to bond with nature, I guess. But either way, like it's, this can be useful in certain circumstances, not everything. Absolutely. So, um, that, and that, you know, like I said, when we mentioned that this started to balloon out into this huge scope of what's, uh, of what is supposed to be available out of this, which I don't know, it's, I always get, I'm always hesitant and, and a little bit alarmed when I see these just kind of ridiculous benefits available mm-hmm. by something, you know, it, that, that I think as for anybody out there, uh, who doesn't already have this skill when you hear something as miraculous as that um, immediately be skeptical because there is nothing that we have found that has so far reaching of implication. Yeah. Anytime you see something that's a quote unquote cure all you, you should red flag should go up. Yep. That's a, that's a red flag. 
Perfect. Okay. Um, so there's also, um, I really wanted to get into some of the actual research on this and, uh, and look up and I tried to find things that were pretty recent. So within the last year or two, um, just make sure they were on the most up to date research that's being done with animal assisted therapy. And what I found was uh, by a group, uh, the first author's name was Linder, and this was published this year in 2018. And what they were interested in is, uh, again, there's a whole subsection of animal-assisted therapy called canine-assisted reading programs. And um, they had this particular quote-unquote intervention. Um, they were using second graders in a public elementary school. This is a group study, which means they had um, some students who had uh, the dogs available when they read and some students who didn't. Um, and there were 14 students in each group. Okay, And 30 minutes a week, they would have the dog present while they read. And they actually had to do this in after school hours because they um, they couldn't like work. The school didn't have a policy that allowed them to like pull the kids apart like that and have the dogs. Anyway, uh, so they got additional reading lessons after school with the dogs okay and then the other group did they get any additional reading lessons in the absence of dogs or did they just continue with their standard curriculum from what i recall from when i read this they did not get any additional it was just their standard reading curriculum got it they, they may have actually been the case that they removed that 30 minutes from their classroom time for the experimental group i'm not entirely sure but again it was only 30 minutes a week it wasn't even per day and so what did they find they found that their uh, their reading progress didn't change at all for either group. <laughs> so uh, there's that. Um, now, what they also found uh, was that their recreational reading attitudes um, did not change. Which, which is I to do say, find surprising. I would think if there would be any effect, maybe there might be some attitudes change. Kids being, you know, a little more inclined to to read on their own. Um, because, you know, they got to read alongside something super fun and cute like a doggy. And that was one of the hypotheses of the study was that they would be more inclined to enjoy reading more. Um, but they actually found that that really didn't affect their preference for wanting to read. What they did find is that the kids liked having the dogs around. <laughs> I'm not sure if that counts as therapy, but <laughs> the kids did like having the dogs around while they were reading. So It's like dogs. So, I mean, you know, at least we've got a little bit more proof for what has been claimed for for years that kids really enjoy being around dogs. Now, yes, exactly. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Who knew? Um, And so looking at the specific numbers of this, I'm not going to get really down in the weeds about like statistics or anything, um, but they they declared this a successful study that supported the idea of using dogs or this canine assisted reading program. Okay. And specifically what they looked at was they uh, rated the caregiver or maybe it was the teacher, but some adult who was observing the students and ask the, asking them, how much do you like how this is happening and how effective do you think it is? And then they, they would get this raining and they had them change uh, one group changed from 32 to 33 and the other group changed from 32 to 36 hmm. um, and I'm not entirely sure what it was out of although I think it was out of um, it's like it was out of 40 I think 40 yeah and so uh, or at least they, that was maybe the range actually yeah uh, uh, yeah that was mm-hmm. the range of answers that they got mm-hmm. which I imagine that the 40 was the upper limit but, of that yeah. then yeah, and so this was based off of a specific rating scale that they used. And uh, and so, like I said, the control group changed from 32 to 33, so it did improve slightly by one point, and the other one from 30, 32 to 36. And that was statistically significant um, based off of the criteria for statistically significant. Um, and I'm just looking at this thinking, 
That seems like a pretty small change. And you're also not directly measuring their reading behavior. You're asking someone else whether they think that it changed. Um, that to me seems like quite a stretch to then say this research supports the use of canines in reading programs when their reading progress didn't change, their attitudes about reading didn't change. The only thing that changed significantly was how the caregivers perceived their uh, children's actions. And again, not based off of any empirical evidence or observational objective facts. So... so flawed <laughs> yeah. the very if we're being kind is it, it, there were some significant flaws in how this uh study was was conducted well, and if you're going to do a group study 14 students in each group is pretty small it's hard to get really good statistics on a, on a group that small like mm-hmm. that's um I, i'm not entirely sure how how much that would have affected but it seems like that would be an important consideration so there's that Okay. Um, Another study I found, um, let's see if I can pronounce this correctly, by a group where the lead author's name was Macalo. I would go with that. Macalo. Okay. Macalo and uh, and their colleagues. And this was in 2018. And um, and they were they were looking at a bunch of of research that has been published on this. And what they said was that therapy dogs, whatever that might mean, did not significantly increase physiological stress responses, nor did they exhibit significantly more stress-related behaviors than affiliative-related behaviors while participating in um, pediatric oncology settings. And so they were looking at um, specifically cancer with kids. Um, And they're thinking, well, if we have these dogs in here with these kids who have cancer, that might make it so this is less stressful, a little easier for them to be in this environment. Um, Turns out that was not not as successful as the hypothesized. And but they also weren't more stressed. So it was a fairly neutral response that the participants had to having the dogs around. Sure. Yeah. Or was this Um, perhaps on average? Because I would also imagine, too, there would be some children that would have would have a stress response. They might they might be fearful of dogs. Um, is this That's a, a great point? A group average? Do you know? I I don't recall from when I read that that particular study. Um, but that's a really good point. That it's possible that you had some of the upper range where you had people those those individuals who are afraid of dogs maybe reacted poorly versus those who liked dogs who reacted positively and that ended up washing out the numbers. Mm. Again, coming back to the fact that dogs in, in and of themselves do not intrinsically help reduce stress during this cancer. It's sort of a case-by-case basis. And whether or not they actually help with stress, what they might do is be a distraction, which can be good. Yeah. Um, and But, you know, that's just not that clearly demonstrated right now. So, you know, hard, hard to really pull that out. Like, that that's just another hypothesis that I just came up with on the spot. So we just don't know. Um, there was th- this may have been the same study. Actually, I my notes are not clear on this, but I uh, in looking at um, post post traumatic stress disorder with war veterans, um, many of them talk about having these emotional benefits of dogs around, um, and some of them have described that they have sort of so. Uh, a lot of people who suffer from post traumatic stress disorder have this sort of really hyper vigilant. Um, feeling where like they're really just prepared for danger at every second and they're really alert um, and stuff like that. But um, what some of these veterans report with having some of these dogs around for their emotional support um, that, or, you know, they're 
supposed to be trained therapy dogs and whatnot, is that those dogs actually reduce that hypervigilance because they created these sort of boundaries and um, they would alert them to thing, any dangers. So they sort of, they didn't say this specifically, but it seemed like what they were describing was they they didn't feel like they had to be responsible for being alert because the dog did that for them. And so that helped them sort of reduce that stress that they were experiencing. Some of them also reported that that, that subsequently decreased their nightmares and therefore improved some of their sleep their sleep quality as well as how long they were able to sleep um and that the dogs also sort of helped uh, the veterans turn their attention away from those thoughts that were related to uh, the trauma they had experienced okay and the um, logic with that it does seem you know it, it, that does align with um other things that are empirically validated uh right. you know as far as uh, prevention when it comes to these kinds of responses um not necessarily with dogs but you know with other with other types of um uh, therapies so you know this could very well be the case but it looks like some of their measurement was a little tricky there were there weren't real objective measures these were largely self-reports is that correct yeah, exactly. And, you know, and that's it's fine for people to have those reports if they feel like they're getting a benefit out of it. That's not necessarily a problem. Um, and other things the dogs did is because dogs require maintenance in terms of going for walks and getting outside and that sort of thing. Um, a lot of them report and there might be some more objective evidence around this, but uh, increased participation in physical activity as well as increased participation in uh, in a community with other people, like going to the dog park and seeing people there, um, mm. and therefore uh, reduced suicidal impulses and medication. Now, all that sounds great, and you know that's awesome for those people who are able to benefit from this. And it's also worth pointing out that many of the veterans pointed out that there was a lot of challenges in the stress of maintaining the well-being of these animals, that it's not just that there was an improvement in those things, but it also means that you have to worry about the medical health of the animal, that you have to make sure they're constantly fed and well cared for, and that if they're making any messes or anything like that, um, and just sort of having to always be on top of being responsible for that animal, especially if there are animals that maybe have a few more health issues than others, that that actually had increased amount of stress for those people. And so some um, some people didn't have a, the same amount of benefit. Again, sort of that case-by-case -case basis thing we've already mentioned a couple of times. And another thing that they point out is that those people who did report those benefits, they often, it was the case that it really took a while for those benefits to accumulate and them to start feel like they were, um, they were experiencing the positive effects of, of having that dog around. Um, that it wasn't just, there's a dog in your life, immediately everything's awesome, right? <laughs> and I do want to point out again, now we're talking about this with war veterans, that this is not to say that especially dogs that help with uh, vision impairment and so they're guide dogs like that. That's not what we're talking about here. Those obviously serve a very important and critical role. Uh, I've seen stories of veterans who were basically suicidal and after having a dog in their life were no longer suicidal. And so, you know, just pointing out that did have benefits for people and not necessarily for everybody and not in the same way. But, okay. Uh, a last study I'm going to go over really quick was by Wagemaker, which is a fun name, Very and fun. colleagues, yeah, in 2017. And uh, they were looking uh, at that robot uh, animal-assisted therapy. And they specifically said that there there were not any clear benefits um, on alertness and um, and in mood in adults with moderate to severe intellectual disabilities, but that there were some positive interactions with the robot, uh, and this is that robot seal, um, and that there, there could be positive that they... Uh, that, 
there could be some positive benefits of the fact that they had those, what I want to call this, like nice experiences with their giant seal Furbies. <laughs> <laughs> Trademark, seal Furby. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> you, you shall start collecting your royalty checks now. Absolutely. Nice. All right. And so um, I, I did come through quite a few of the reviews um, in the research of this. And a lot of them, uh, even those who are really in support of this idea of animal assisted interventions or animal assisted therapy, they specifically point out that the research methods are really diverse, so much so that they couldn't necessarily synthesize and compare. And by synthesize, I mean, they couldn't like distill from that research a like treatment strategy that people use because it's so different among all of them and they couldn't really compare them either to determine whether or not one was better than the other they had different ways of measuring how effective they were they had different strategies for using them some of them many of them most of them that i saw didn't even report on their methods so it would have been impossible to compare them anyway um and and so again these are people who they're saying we should do this animal assisted intervention they specifically even say the evidence is pretty slim and it is improving, you know, the more and more research is being done, but none of the research that's being done has looked at these really objective physical or behavioral measures. Okay. And this is important for a lot of reasons. Um, one, because if it's not objective, then it's really hard to know how much we can really rely on those data and what's being reported, how that's being measured and, and how it's being interpreted. Okay. As I mentioned, uh, some of the measures are reported from ob other observations from other people like they're not even there and a lot of times these are people that they're the ones who are paying for this so they have this conflict where they are sort of looking for hey i spent twenty five hundred dollars on this intervention like i i want to see improvement so it's possible that there is some bias there that is um I want to say sort of driving them toward being sensitive to seeing improvements, whether or not there's real improvements there. Yeah. And they might see those improvements in the moment. Uh, like, let's say, going back to that idea of swimming with dolphins, immediately this bizarre environment, we see that this, this child whose attention is normally everywhere is really focused on that dolphin. That doesn't mean that that continues outside of that, right? Exactly. So, we don't want to be made the fool, so to speak. Exactly. And then the studies that do exist, these are often published in the journals that are dedicated to promoting animal-assisted interventions. So that's kind of a conflict of interest, that their agenda is to make this more available. So they're more likely to portray it as having been successful than it maybe necessarily is. And I mean, a lot of people want to believe in this, and a lot of people sell it. Um, and that's why it's really important to understand what's really out there and what's really going on, because People can be taken advantage of in a completely unregulated market like this, right? So, as I mentioned, talking about what these interventions actually look like, what does it mean to experience animal-assisted therapy? Well, basically, it looks like spending time with an animal in a lot of cases. And that makes me wonder, would like a stuffed animal work? Would one of those <laughs> digipets work? Going back to you pointing out, would a Furby work? Also, I'm really curious, would a virtual reality animal work? work right sure. yeah like right yeah get like this little virtual reality environment where you have to take care of an animal um what about just taking care of like a plant you know i always used to joke that uh, a friend of mine i thought was so irresponsible but they wanted to have kids and i remember her saying something i'm like you know what first you should have a pet rock and if you can if you can have a pet rock for two years then we'll graduate Consider. you up to cactus <laughs> 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 we'll just keep going up maybe we'll go to like pet beetle 
or something, exactly. a cockroach, so it's hard to kill it. Um, and we'll eventually we'll get there, and, and maybe by the time you're 90, you'll have graduated to level of child <laughs> and hopefully not want one. But anyway, that was I was just kidding. I was mostly making fun of them for being irresponsible sometimes. So. <laughs> And so let's go over really quick some of the uh, the research as well on specifically on dolphin assisted therapy and, and what that what's been found there. So th- this is definitely not a cure. And the people that offer this type of therapy um, do offer it as a real therapy, though, as opposed to recreation. So there are no real minimum standards. Um, you know, it's really hard to authenticate this as therapy since there really aren't any measurable effects. Right. And this is pro- this is obviously problematic. The source of the effects it's it's pretty tricky to kind of nail down what that could be you know the people who provide this type of therapy report anything from you know the brain waves that are received through dolphin sonar frequency on the human body Um, these kinds of positive physiological effects are perhaps what is having some sort of effect Um, again not something that's easily observable or measurable which makes it really really tricky uh, specifically, there are this therapy has been provided to children with autism, and they do appear to benefit. Um, it's reported that they appear to benefit, and that these explanations are scientifically plausible in some way. Um, there's a lot of emotional testimonials, um, you know, and, and parents who are just seeking anything to help their children find it really, really hard to resist. So there's obviously a very vulnerable situation at play here um, right and where and there's the see, potential to be taken advantage of and they see their kids interacting with these dolphins and they're smiling and having fun and playing and again this is totally radically weird environment they've never been in before then yeah like it makes them feel like hey this is great this is working even though that's again it's anecdote it's not evidence and it's not based on any real observation of change or improvement exactly and so you know you can ask well what's the harm what's the big deal so you know maybe this isn't therapeutically sound so to speak but what's the harm they could be having a good time you know always good question to ask but i think you know the worst case scenario in this is if you're you know spending hours a day playing with a dolphin you're not spending those hours actually contacting treatment that can really help you and enhance your life yeah, and I think that another point that is raised, and we'll get into a little bit in a moment here when we talk about some of the considerations around using this, is uh, what's the benefit for the dolphins? Or what's this mean for the quality of life for the dolphins? And even even those who are the most staunch advocates of humans first, which is fine. That's not, you know, I, I consider myself a humanist, and I think human life um, and quality of life is very important. It is also worth asking, ethically speaking, you know, what what are the considerations around the animals that we're dealing with here? And so um, let's actually get into some of those considerations um, with, the, with the entire, the overarching scope of this animal-assisted therapy thing, right? Well, the first question I think we need to ask is, how could this possibly work? And I think that we can just take the initial hypothesis of humans have an intrinsic bond need to bond with nature and say, well, that's not based on anything, and I don't know that that's true, and... There's, there is a whole hypothesis called, I think, biophilia, which I plan to do an episode on at some point. But um, I don't think that means anything, and there's it's based on nothing. Um, we often like nature, but we're also often around it. And, um, I, and we are part of nature itself. And we are part of nature you know, itself. So This I, idea I that we are removed from nature, I think, is inherently problematic. Um, right. And just and just not in any, found in any sort of not based in any sort of fact in any way. Yeah. And so I think that that's, 
I feel like it's okay to say like that one's not the most compelling uh, hypothesis to work on. The claim for why this works is that um, there is this interaction with another living creature has this positive uh, benefit for some reason. And that there is this, um, the fact that you can uh, see when you touch an animal, they react to that touch and that you can uh, have an animal that approaches you and has this sort of quote unquote non-judgmental interaction where it just wants to sort of be around you, that all of these things have this positive, nice, fluffy sort of relationship. And that's fine for what it is, I guess, but there's no reason to believe that that would have any necessarily significant therapeutic effects, especially in something as profoundly impactful as a diagnosis like autism or Down syndrome or ADHD or dyslexia or arthritis or stroke or anything like that, you know? And so um, there might be some of these sort of positive interactions that people have. And there's no reason to believe that that has that that can significantly alter the course of that individual's life from that interaction alone. Okay, so um, another one is this idea that um, the reason this might work is because animals can sort of be a reward, right? And mm-hmm. that's that's going back to the idea of using the dolphins as M and M's, or or using horses, you know, whatever it's going to be. Um, and that it's that if and only if. So this is something that kids really want to do. They have fun with it. They like it. That's great. And so um, they'll uh, they'll work to gain access to it. And by doing that work, they build up their skills and their knowledge of things that are important, including things like social skills and that sort of thing. Okay, that's fine. Um, often. Usually, when we're doing therapy, especially with individuals with autism or other intellectual or developmental disabilities, we use these these rewards in order to try and reinforce those behaviors. And a lot of people, you know, there's a whole controversy about using rewards that we can tackle some other time. The point being that um, these rewards are effective. They're small. They're quickly delivered, they're efficient, and they're usually about the same size and quality every time. And that's when mentioning that whole idea of uh, dolphins as M&Ms. M&Ms, they're small, they're quickly delivered, they're efficient, they're effective, and they're about the same size and quality every time. And that's why they work well as rewards, right? And that's the same thing of you can use other smaller rewards. If you're playing a game, the reward is often points, Um like a video game. Um, if you are going to a vending machine, the reward is a little piece of candy from pressing buttons on a vending machine and putting money into it, right? And and actually, a lot of marketing and, um, and economics is based on the idea that there is this sort of Q-reward relationship and that um, companies will try and establish these cues and these rewards. And so all that is to say that this idea of it being reward, a reward is fine. And when we take that and apply it to the concept of animals, then um, uh, it becomes a little tricky. So if, for example, you're trying to teach a child to follow one-step instructions like sit down, like we just want them to follow the instructions, sit down, right? And there's no real reward for doing that intrinsically. They don't just sit down and go, ah. sitting down so good you know um especially because they're probably you probably ask them to do that while they're doing something else that they are really enjoying and having a reward so you're actually probably taking away that reward by having them sit down so if they do sit down then you can deliver that really quick reward the m&m or whatever and and that happens at least initially until they're following those instructions consistently there's nothing magical about m&ms or or any particular candy right they have no therapeutic powers in, in and of themselves it would be like saying that okay, well, we use these M&Ms and we saw that we were able to effectively change their behavior when we used it as a reward. Well, if the M&Ms are so powerful, then let's just dunk that kid's head in a bowl of M&Ms and boom, <laughs> autism cured, right? That, 
that that's that's sort of what's going on with this idea with the animal assisted therapy there's nothing magical about animals and like yeah you can use them as a as a reward but pretending to simply having access to an animal will provide that therapeutic benefit would be like saying just because you hand a kid a, ha- a handful of m&ms or or some kind of candy is going to have some therapeutic benefit is just nonsense right it's it's assuming that because they're an effective therapeutic tool then um, the more that you have of them that intrinsically that they will be an effective therapy in and of themselves like Mm -hmm. just here go to town on whatever this is and thinking about the practicality of using an animal as a reward i'm like how long does it take to hand a kid a little piece of candy versus how long does it take to saddle up a horse and get a kid to ride around on Mm -hmm. it and how much time do you spend doing that when you if that was like well hey you sat down let's go on a on a horseback ride um and even if it's only five minutes it's five seconds for a little piece of candy and not that candy is the only way to do it. There's also praise statements and play and stuff like that that you can use as reward. But just getting at the fact that animals are just, they're so much more difficult to have as a reward. We have far more effective and efficient ways of delivering rewards than saddling up a horse or tossing a kid in a pool with a dolphin. Yeah. And even the, like if it was a small thing like a rabbit i'm like okay well how long is that going to continue to work and they go over and they get to pet the rabbit and okay um okay N- you know now what um and so i just think it's important to consider like the practicality of this and then how much this costs and again going back to the idea of the well-being of the animals but let's let's take for a second the fact that not only is it the f- the extent to which you can use those as a reward, but how long does it take to get to that reward, right? Mm-hmm. And and we know from the research that especially when you take um, organisms, um, and that can include humans, but we'll stay with animals, um, like, uh, like a, a pigeon or something, that the delay to that reward will significantly decrease how effective that reward is for that organism, right? Um, and so... Uh, that could potentially be true because at least in one way, because that or that that animal, that pigeon has no language by which they can understand that the relationship between the fact that they just got that reward and the thing that they did, if that was five minutes, you know, then uh, they might not be able to understand that relationship anymore. Instead, it was whatever they were doing right before they got that reward. That's exactly right. And I mean, you know, we do have some research around delayed rewards as well. But, you know, those delays are still quite short. You're talking five seconds versus 30 seconds versus one minute. Um, So, you know, we do have some things showing that. And obviously, there are some other ways that we can delay rewards, whether that's through um, things like tokens, stickers, you know, demonstrating that, you know, a a kiddo, you know, in a learning environment is working towards something bigger. Um, Right. But that being said, you know, it's still it's still not necessary um, or efficient to allow access to oftentimes to allow access to these other things. I mean, you know, so I worked at a school that had, you know, a therapy dog that um, was available to the kiddos, you know, if they were willing to complete all the work during the day and they would get reminders, you know, they were working for time to play with the dog and they'd be given tokens and they, and they, and, and, and that could actually help them, you know, stay focused on their work. You know, they were really motivated and excited to hang out with this dog, but you know, that lasted for a little bit of time, you know, maybe it would come back every once in a while. Um, so the point is, is that there's, there's, while the dog, was you know helpful in in maintaining motivation um 
you know, it, the, the, it wasn't necessarily as effective or efficient as, you know, the sticker itself that was given to them immediately after, you know, they completed a reading task or completed a math problem. There are just potentially better ways to go about delivering rewards um, in, in a way that's easier and, and is more effective. Right. And, you know, we actually have at my work, we also have a, a dog that is a certified therapy dog. And a lot of the kids will work to go play with the dog sometimes, not consistently. And it is only for about 30 seconds when they do so. And so, uh, yeah, like that. And, and these are kids who like they, they can't understand that relationship between the, the, the delayed access to that reward and the performance that they just had. Um, but it's worth considering like the relative level of, um, I guess, interaction and understanding of that relationship uh, for the kids. So there might be some for whom that's just too delayed and they just won't get it. Like it might just be, hey, we magically got to swim with dolphins for some reason. I don't know, I don't know why, but here we are. That's cool. Um, and so I think it's just worth saying that even if animals work as a reward, it's a terribly inefficient system. And despite that, the point is that candies are not therapy. An iPad is not therapy. Animals are not therapy. If it's a reward, fine. Call it a reward. But don't call it therapy. Like, there's no evidence to suggest that, there, that, that those rewards are in and of themselves therapeutic. It is the fact that they are used as a tool in a therapeutic setting. Right. And um, another point that I mentioned earlier is this can be insanely expensive. Um, I know I saw for some of the uh, resorts where you can go swim with dolphins, for example, you're spending upwards of $2,000 for a single week there to wow. uh, swim with the dolphins. Yeah. And, uh, and there are, uh, that's, it varies depending on where it's at, but for a very low evidence to suggest that there's real therapeutic benefit, that is an enormous cost to pay. And these are often families who they don't have very many resources to begin with. So they're spending their time and money on things that are not necessarily effective um, when they could be instead spending the money on things that on the things that are. Um, and I had another story, a personal story about I worked with an individual who had an autism diagnosis. And um, this individual was, uh, I think, at 12 or 13, maybe, maybe only 11. Um, but um, he was very aggressive. And um, the the caregivers had read something about like, oh, there are these animals, these dogs that are used for helping kids with autism. And um, we couldn't say, no, don't do that. So we just sort of said, well, you know, the research is pretty unclear. And they're like, well, we want to give it a shot anyway. And so they went and they got a dog. And um, this kid was aggressive toward the dog. Uh, the dog bit the kid and it, it turned into a big thing. They had to get rid of the dog. I, I hope they didn't have to put it down, but it's possible that they did. Um, at least probably got removed from the, the program that they were in. But this is just one of those things where this isn't just about the kid. It's also about like the relationship of that kid, and it's about the well-being of the animal. The kid attacked the animal, and it's perfectly reasonable to expect that the animal is going to fight back when its life is in danger. Um, and so like this is a situation where you just have to be conscientious about what's going to, what could possibly happen. Right. Absolutely. So I was also looking up some other things um, about this. Um, interestingly, just some side notes, I guess the whale and dolphin conservation or the WDC, um, they specifically called for a ban on dolphin assisted therapy uh, because, and they say specifically it causes danger to humans and the animals. And again, has no scientific evidence to support its use. And they point out the fact that dolphins are wild animals. They can be unpredictable. Even when they're well-trained, they can be somewhat um, unpredictable. Or high unpredictable. on LSD. 
or high on LSD. <laughs> exactly. If you're going to give a dolphin LSD, you never know what it's going to do. So, um, and that, uh, the people who have been swimming with dolphins, they've had, they've been bitten. They've gotten bruises, scratches, other abrasions. They've even, um, had broken bones, um, from swimming with this. I mean, these are really large, really powerful animals and you're going on their turf. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they can, they can present quite a risk to human health and safety. And the other problem is that, um, we can do other things like we can actually accidentally communicate diseases to them or we can hurt them or we can prevent them from, um, you know, going out and getting, being in an environment that's, that's more like their natural habitat. So it's really, there's a lot of considerations that, that make it, uh, uh, something to consider to stop doing. And they have specifically called on a ban because of those reasons. Um, they also point out that the people who really support this, they claim that it can treat a whole wide range of things. But the, again, we've gone over the evidence and the evidence really just does not support the idea that um, that this is particularly effective for very many things, if anything at all. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and quote them really quick. So yeah. the, this is Marino and Lilienfeld in 2007 say, quote, despite uh, DATs, which is dolphin assisted therapies, extensive promotion to the general public, the evidence that it produces enduring improvements in the core symptoms of any psychological disorder is nil, end quote. Um, and so they specifically say that um, people who are considering this, they really need to at least be made aware of the fact that this has not been adequately tested and that the evidence is not clear and that there are dangers. And another final consideration around all of this with the dolphins specifically, but this is actually true of pretty much all of them, is this is an unregulated field. There are no guidelines. There's no requirements that they have to do or to meet. Like the ones that exist, they made up. And um, and so it can be kind of anything. And so this is sort of the Wild West in the way where it could kind of just be anything. Mm-hmm. And so those are those are some of the major considerations around that. Mm-hmm. But let's let's try and take a slightly positive spin. Like, what what yeah. could be gained here? Well, I mean, so you know, we know that contingencies generally are therapeutic. Um, you know, we do have empirical research behind that. That's absolutely true. And and if these, if animals are a part of that contingency, there's there's no reason to believe that it wouldn't be effective. And that goes back to the whole idea of that sort of. When, when they talk about the when you pet an animal and it reacts to that pet and it comes to you, like, yeah, there's all the interaction. That is a thing that can happen. And it's possible that being able to have something have a reciprocal reaction to you when you react with it will help in a way build the relation of that sort of if-then reward punishment system where if I do this and the animal goes away, but I want the animal there, then that's kind of a punishment. And if I do this and the animal comes toward me and I want the animal toward me, then that kind of works as reinforcement. That can, in a way, build a, a set of skills around those types of rules, but they're also kind of specific to the animal in that setting, in that moment mm-hmm. right and, and specific to the learner um you know definitely yeah. it, it's not necessarily necessarily the case that that is something they are going to enjoy sure. something that is going to be rewarding for them yeah and not consistently either you know mm-hmm. um and so uh, there's another i'm actually so one, one thing i was looking up with this is something called horticultural therapy um which is kind of what it sounds like has to do with like plants and growing plants um and i think it would be worth doing a whole episode on on that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and what and what's involved in that basically is that um, when people take care of plants, um, then there's been shown, and it, this can involve gardening, but also just having like a single potted plant, um, that there has been some 
um, some really cool research on showing that that can improve the condition, especially, especially, and this has been done primarily with um, people in elderly population who are in like group homes and that sort of thing. So, um, and as we said, basically the whole idea of the, that contingencies can be therapeutic, having access to a powerful reinforcer can be an effective tool for improving someone's overall conditions, right? Absolutely. And, and then having that significantly radical different environment can be, it can sort of kickstart in a way this like, hey, pay attention to this thing that's going on. And now we can use this now that we've got your attention to try and, and change things. Exactly. But that, yeah, but again, not necessarily consistent and not every time. So how do we, what do we take home from this, Abraham? Well, here's my thought on this is I don't. I think it is inappropriate to call it therapy in and of itself, right? Therapy implies that there is an improvement in the overall quality of life in a particular direction. And that's not necessarily implied by this unrestricted access to an animal or even when it's uh, restricted in the sense that it's earned as a reward. It can be really delayed. It can be inconsistently effective um, and it can be dangerous, expensive, it's hard and inefficient and I don't know, there's lots of things. So I, I think the idea of calling it therapy is just, you know, it's overstating what is available out of this practice. Right. And there is little, and I, I would say basically no good empirical evidence that really shows objectively um, with observation and measurement uh, that this, that there's no evidence that supports this idea that they have this intrinsically therapeutic effect. At best, you have these speculative hypotheses like humans have an intrinsic need to bond with nature and other things that people have said that dolphins have telepathic abilities or that their sonar will improve our mental health. Um, Those are not things that have ever been tested. In addition to the fact that there's no empirical evidence, there's also no real conceptual reason that this should work. And we didn't, didn't even really touch on this in this conversation, but like why, why conceptually speaking would this have any real effect um and there kind of, there kind of isn't a reason in addition you know there are obvious dangers to both the humans and the animals when it comes to this claim you know there's there's no because the the field itself is not regulated there are definitely questions of ethics around animal rights you know a lot of the times these are wild animals that perhaps should be in in their natural environment rather than in a pool um interacting with humans that could also them in and of themselves display some erratic behavior which could scare the animals could um, cause them to harm the humans as well so that's a, a big consideration that is is not being held up it appears by by the field that is actually conducting um, this type of therapy right um, so yeah I guess when it comes down to it it's not a completely terrible idea but it does need to be toned down it, it's not therapy it's at best you know an activity that could be potentially rewarding and, and fun. Um, yeah and, and a good time and when it comes down to it you know the legitimate research uh needs to validate it before it's considered anything more than that yeah I mean, i think that that is sort of one of the major things is just if this is going to work and, and and maybe it maybe it can there just needs to be better research and it just needs to be based on on better methods, better reporting, better observation, better measurement. It, I mean, this is this has been going on for a few decades now. And the fact that it still looks the way it does is a little bit concerning. Like, 
you know, if, if this is a legitimate potential for therapeutic benefit, then then do the research to show that it has that benefit. And and I will believe it. You know, I, I just have to see good research. And that's the only thing that I ever need to convince me. So that's where I'm at with that. Same. Cool. All right. Well, I think that kind of wraps us up. Do you have anything else you want to go over with this? I don't. Stay, right. stay skeptical, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Miranda. It has been fun. I look forward to more episodes like these. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Abraham. All right, so this is Abraham. This is Miranda. And we're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. (laughs) 